0: Hi everyone, I'm Megan Sullivan, and welcome to History and Games, a podcast where I play historical fiction games and talk about the real history behind the game. In the last episode, I talked about Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and whether or not the heroes of the story, Alexios and Cassandra, could have really been Spartan mercenaries. And the answer is yes. There were at least three real-life Spartan mercenaries running around during and after the Peloponnesian War. Cool, huh? So now that we've established it's possible for Alexios and Cassandra to have been A, mercenaries, and B, actual relatives of King Leonidas, let's move on to our final Odyssey-related question. Could the great-great-niece and nephew of Leonidas really have brandished an all-powerful spear wielded by the heroic ancestor? Stay tuned to find out. This is History in Games. Before we answer the question of whether or not Leonidas' relatives could have wielded the king's spear, let's get a basic idea of what an ancient Greek spear actually looked like and how it was used in battle. Spears were known as dori or doru. The word first appears in Homer's epic poem, The Iliad, and was frequently used in expressions like spear won or spear taken. Why? Because the spear, not the sword, was a weapon of choice in ancient Greece. The dory was anywhere between seven to nine feet long. The shaft was made of ashwood, which was considered the ideal wood for spears since it was both light and strong. The front end of the spear was tipped with a leaf shaped iron blade. The back end was fitted with a heavy bronze spike called a sorotere or savrotira, which meant lizard killer. This bronze spike acted like a counterweight. It was also used to either ground the spear upright or dispatch wounded enemies found crawling on the ground. Hence the name, Lizard Killer. Along with the spear, Greek hoplites also had a secondary weapon, a short sword known as a xiphos. Though it looked more like an oversized dagger than a sword, its shorter blade, made of either bronze or iron, was in fact very practical. In Leonidas's time, soldiers, known as hoplites, were almost completely covered in bronze armor and in close quarter combat the sword was able to slip through the gaps in the armor and disable opponents. But the sword was a last resort. If you defeated your enemies with your spear alone it meant you didn't have to resort to hand-to-hand fighting. There were other weapons as well like javelins and bows but hoplites didn't normally use those so we won't concern ourselves with them here. Our main focus is the spear. When not sticking the enemy with a pointy end, hoplites stored their spears safely away in their homes. In ancient Greece, it was illegal to publicly bear arms. Spears and swords were weapons of war, and only to be used against enemy opponents on the battlefield, never against their fellow citizens. Even the warlike Spartans adhered to this rule, and chose instead to carry around a wooden staff that symbolized both authority and a life of peace and leisure off the battlefield. So now that we have an idea of the type of weapons Greek warriors would have used, let's return to our all-important question. Could a real-life descendant of King Leonidas truly have wielded the power of the spear? In Assassin's Creed Odyssey, the answer is yes. The main protagonist, which, depending on who you choose, is either named Alexius or Cassandra, has inherited Leonidas' dory, which was retrieved from the battlefield of Thermopylae. There, the king and 300 of his best Spartan troops— along with around 1,200 other Greeks, made a heroic last stand against the invading Persian army during the Second Greco-Persian War. Although the spear is broken at the start of the game, it still manages to contain groovy mystical properties that allow the main characters to do some serious damage to enemies while looking super cool. In real life, well, the answer is a little more complicated. In order to figure it out, we'll need to hop back into the Animus and travel 2,500 years into the past, where we'll scour the ancient battlefield of Thermopylae to see if it's actually possible to identify and retrieve Leonidas' spear. As we travel back in time, I just want to remind everyone I do not speak fluent Greek. So although I will try my best to pronounce all the Greek names correctly, I apologize in advance if I don't quite get it right. But hey, feel free to reach out to me about the proper pronunciation of these names, and I'll happily keep that in mind going forward. I'll let you know how to contact me at the end of the episode. Ooh, and I also want to take this opportunity to include a small bit of interesting medical information pertaining to the last history in games. In the second episode, I mentioned King Agassi Laos somehow managed to rupture a vein in his leg while on campaign. I didn't elaborate on the incident because in all honesty, I wasn't sure how someone could rupture a vein like that. But as it turns out, it's possible the elderly king had what are called varicose veins, which can rupture. And if that's true, a varicose vein in Agasilaus's leg could definitely have burst while he was exerting himself during a military expedition. So, medical mystery possibly solved. By the way, I just want to point out what a tough soldier Agasilaus was. When he was on that military campaign, he was well into his 60s. Fighting at that age was pretty brave. But he's not the only brave soldier in Spartan history— as we're about to find out now that the Animus has taken us to our next temporal destination. And here we are in ancient Thessaly. It's late August, 480 BCE, and we're standing in a narrow pass wedged between the mountains and the sea. The fighting's over now, but it was here in an area known as Thermopylae that an intense three-day standoff took place between the invading Persian army of King Xerxes and the defending Greek army led by the Spartan king Leonidas. Although the Greeks were vastly outnumbered, they put up a heroic fight and managed to stave off the Persians for two whole days. Then, when they found themselves surrounded on the third day of fighting, Leonidas and a small contingent of men volunteered to stay behind and act like human shields, while the rest of the Greek army escaped so they could fight another day. This noble self-sacrifice catapulted Leonidas into legend and became the heroic gold standard for millennia to come. Now, lucky for us, most of the bodies have been taken up by both sides and buried, sparing us a gruesome sight. But there's still a lot of broken debris on the ground— Evidence of a violent struggle. The Greek soldiers who stayed here knew the fate of their homes and families hinged on just how long they could hold off the Persians. And they were so determined to stop the enemy that they literally fought tooth and nail to the bitter end. Don't believe me? Here's a passage from Herodotus. By the end, most of the Greek spears had broken, so they were slaying the Persians with their swords. And it was during this struggle that Leonidas fell the man who had proved himself the most valiant of all. The fighting continued until the forces of Ephialtes arrived. When the Greeks learned they had come, they retreated to the narrow part of the road, and after passing a wall, stationed themselves together upon a hill. On this spot, they tried to defend themselves with their daggers, if they still had them, or if not, with their hands and their teeth. The Greeks definitely did not go down without a fight but eventually the Persians managed to wipe them all out. That was cold comfort to King Xerxes, however. He lost two brothers in the fighting and thousands of soldiers. He was so furious at the amount of men he lost that he ordered King Leonidas' body found, beheaded, and possibly crucified. It was a shockingly disrespectful thing to do, not just for the Greeks, who considered such disregard of the dead sacrilegious, but for the Persians as well who normally treated their enemies' bodies with great respect. But Xerxes wanted to send a clear message. This is what happens to troublemakers. If he thought the Greeks would be intimidated, however, he was in for a shock. They were not intimidated. In fact, it made them more determined than ever to fight. And as I mentioned in the first episode of History and Games, because Leonidas managed to delay the Persians, the Greeks were able to pull back their forces, evacuate their cities, and prepare for the naval battle of Salamis, which turned the tide of the war and set the Greeks on a path to victory. So, even though the Greeks technically lost at Thermopylae, symbolically, it was a huge win for them, and it made the Spartans look like heroes. A physical object representing this heroic accomplishment would have been a major source of pride for Sparta, and we know this because we have anecdotal evidence via Plutarch. The ancient historian claims that in his time, visitors to Sparta could still see the spear of the legendary mercenary king, Agisileus II. This is an exciting bit of information, because it proves that objects of heroic kings were identified, preserved, and even venerated. But wait... How did Plutarch know that was really the spear of King Agisilaus? I mean, Agisilaus did live hundreds of years before the historian's time. Well, Plutarch admits that the spear he saw looked the same as any other spear. Nothing special about it, no fancy decorations, no intricate carvings. Of course, that could be because Agisilaus was different from the rest of his royal predecessors. He loved embracing the austere lifestyle that the Spartans were famous for, and might have deliberately wielded a more humble-looking weapon. But there's another possibility. Maybe he did have a fancy spear, but over time the spear's wooden shaft and iron tip disintegrated and were thrown out in favor of replicas. Any unique etchings, patterns, or anything else that could identify a royal spear would probably have been lost. But good news! There's a very high probability that the original bronze butt spike, the Savrotira, was still in existence in Plutarch's era, since bronze doesn't rust like iron or rot like wood. And it's a safe bet the reason Plutarch was able to identify the spear so confidently was because it had the name Agassilaus engraved on the bronze end. Plutarch doesn't say this, but archaeological evidence does. In the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, there's a bronze spear butt featuring distinct etchings on the top and writing along the edges. The top inlay features curved bands and a charming ivy motif. The writing on the edge bears an inscription dedicating the item to the Heavenly Twins and includes the words from the Idians on it. The Idians were a people living in the area of Arcadia, just north of Sparta. So it's possible this bronze butt spike, which dates from around 500 BCE, just 20 years before the Battle of Thermopylae, was taken from an Arcadian soldier as part of a war trophy. It's even possible it was taken by a Spartan, since the Spartans were not only famous for their worship of the heavenly twins, they were also known to have their problems with their Arcadian neighbors. And in the British Museum, there's a bronze butt spike from the same century bearing the inscription, From the Spartans... Theodorus dedicates this to King Zeus. These votive offerings, which are in pristine condition, show us the most likely way for Plutarch to identify Agesilaus' spear was through an engraving of his name on its preserved bronze end. But the writing on all of these spears was added either after battle, or in Agesilaus' case, after his death. So we're forced to conclude that ancient Greeks probably didn't personalize their weapons, at least not before going into battle. That's going to make identifying Leonidas' spear at Thermopylae a lot harder, but not impossible. As I mentioned, one of the bronze savartira found by archaeologists had a unique ivy motif on it, which means Leonidas' spear could have also had a special design engraved on it, making it easier to identify. Hmm, but what kind of design? Maybe a lion to represent his name, which means son of a lion. Or maybe the symbol of the heavenly twins, Two vertical posts connected by two horizontal beams, which was a popular motif in Sparta. Granted, whatever the decoration, it's going to be small and hard to see. But a patient, eagle-eyed person looking to preserve Leonidas's legacy could spot it. But is it even still here at Thermopylae? I'm not sure. You see, since the Persians won the battle, they ended up controlling the field. And they've already combed through this area looking for war booty. If there was anything of value here, it's likely somebody took it. But what's interesting is that there's no mention of Persian soldiers stripping Greeks of their armor or weapons by Herodotus, who's our main source on Thermopylae. Maybe because the Greeks, especially the Spartans, didn't have nearly as nice of gear as the Persians. So there's an outside chance that Leonidas' spear is still here in the scattered debris. The problem is that it's one of thousands of spears littering the field. Finding one particular spear, even a spear featuring a unique design, is a proverbial needle in a haystack. For now, it's easier to try and look for something else that could be identified as belonging to Leonidas. Hmm. What about a sword? Herodotus does say at the end of the battle the Greeks were fighting furiously with their swords. It's a possibility, but unfortunately we have no surviving swords from Leonidas' time, so... We don't really know what kind of distinct markings to look for. Darn. But wait! There are two other objects we could easily identify. The king's shield and his helmet. Let's start with his shield. Now, despite what popular fiction tells us, the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae did not bear the famous lambda symbol on their shields. That was a later invention, possibly meant to help identify different military units from around the area of Sparta, aka Laconia during the Peloponnesian War. In Leonidas' time, each individual soldier had a unique emblem painted or embossed in bronze on his shield. Popular shield motifs included a gorgon head, which was meant to petrify opponents, animals like lions, boars, and serpents, objects like cups, and even anatomical parts like legs and wings. So, what kind of emblem would a Spartan king have? Thanks to scant but significant archaeological evidence, we might just know the answer. In Sparta, a stone plaque was found thought to represent the two kings of Sparta dressed in armor and carrying their shields. The king on the left shows the viewer the inside of his shield, which is decorated with a series of circles or round scales. The king on the right shows the viewer the outside of his shield, which has a circle painted in the middle and a series of curving spirals extending to the shield's rim, thought to represent the rays of the sun. Throughout human history. The sun has always represented royalty and celestial beings, so it's very possible that King Leonidas had a similar type of emblem on his shield, which would make it very distinct. Another decorative piece that would help identify his shield was the porpox, a bronze loop that a soldier would put his left arm through in order to help balance the weight of his shield. This piece of bronze was often decorated with elaborate motifs. Here's a description from one such porpox kept in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. The shield band is decorated with figural reliefs on either side of the opening for the arm. The most legible shows a large-seated male holding his hand to his forehead and a woman reaching out her arms to him. This most likely represents Achilles, met by his mother, Thetis. Other shield bands that have survived over the millennia include one depicting Theseus and Ariadne and another depicting a mythological scene involving the centaur Nessos. It seems, then, that having a decorative porpax was pretty popular. Which means, there's a good chance Leonidas' shield had one as well. And if I had to guess, I'd say it was decorated with scenes of the Heavenly Twins or one of Erecles' twelve labors, since the kings of Sparta considered themselves to be the hero's descendants. And maybe, just maybe, we could find the helmet of Leonidas, which would have been removed from his body and tossed aside after the Persians found his body. This helmet would be disdained for a couple of reasons. First, for its traverse horsehair crest, symbolizing Leonidas' rank as the leader of the Spartan army. The second characteristic is some sort of decoration, possibly on the forehead or cheek pieces. Although headgear in the archaic period was usually unadored, decorated helmets were not unheard of. In fact, we have quite a few fancy helmets that have survived over the centuries. One of my favorites is a helmet with a pair of bronze bull horns and bull ears attached to it and another has gold leaf still visible on it. There are also helmets decorated with vines, flowers, snakes, and even a relief depicting Ithocles and Apollo fighting over a deer. But the best example comes from Sparta itself. If you look up the famous marble bust named Leonidas, you'll see the soldier's helmet features ram-shaped cheek guards and a distinct eyebrow design. Now granted, that might have been artistic license on the part of the sculptor, But since we have lots of archaeological evidence of fancy helmets, it may very well depict a common sight in Sparta. So even though we don't have enough time to find Leonidas' spear, we do have other parts of his kit we can look for. Now, I don't see anything here, but maybe that's because the Spartans who came to collect the dead already took these precious items and either buried them with their king or took them home in order to put them on display, just like Agisilaus' spear would be on display a century later. But wait, if the Spartans managed to retrieve something that belonged to Leonidas, how come historic sources are so quiet on the manor? I have a theory. Actually, I have three theories. According to the travel writer Pausanias, King Leonidas' great-nephew King Pausanias, son of King Regent Pausanias, Pausanias was a very popular name in ancient times, decided to bring his royal predecessor's remains back to Sparta 40 years after the Battle of Thermopylae. He did this so that the Spartans could publicly honor Leonidas as a hero, and if any of Leonidas' weapons or armor were on display in Sparta at the time, it's possible Pausanias had them buried with the king to show respect for his warrior status. The second theory is that they were lost in an earthquake. The historian Thucydides reports that sometime in the 460s BCE, Sparta suffered a major earthquake, one that took thousands of lives and destroyed countless buildings. Thus, it's possible these precious objects were lost under the rubble. But the third and most intriguing theory is that his remaining arms and armor were never on display at all. Instead, they were given to his young son Plastarchos. And after his son died, they were then given to one of the lesser-known relatives of Leonidas that we talked about in the first episode of History and Games. And that means this lesser-known relative could have been fighting with Leonidas's spear in the Peloponnesian War, just like Alexios and Cassandra in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is pretty cool. But wait, would that spear really have been mystical or technologically advanced in any way, like in Assassin's Creed Odyssey? Kind of. Although Leonidas' spear was probably not magical in a literal sense, the power of Leonidas' heroic legacy would have filled his descendants with an almost superhuman courage and determination, and you could make the argument that made his spear pretty magical. And thus, it is possible for the great-great-niece and nephew of Leonidas to have brandished an all-powerful spear wielded by their heroic ancestor. And so ends our Greek odyssey. At least, for now. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey to ancient Greece. And don't worry, we still have a lot more history to cover. In our next episode, I'll be breathlessly talking about a time period that you might say is a little more wild can you guess which game is next let me know by contacting me at megan history, m-e-g-n-h-i-s-t-o-r-y at gmail.com you can also contact me on twitter at megan underscore ign or instagram at celtic underscore queen underscore meg thanks for listening to history and games you guys see you next time